Philippines, y'all. Let's get it. Welcome back to Calling All Beings on a Saturday afternoon. I'm your host, DJ, along with my amazing co-host, Nathan, at A Wave Soul. He's secret, baby. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, y'all? Yes, and today we are very happy to to welcome on one of the people that we admire, somebody from UAP, uh, UAP Media UK. This man has written a book called Nathan... UFOs before Roswell. Can I get amen? Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> so party people, put your hands together for Northumbria's own, the Uchida Bebenberg in the UK, Graham Randall. Yes. Woo. Hello. How are you both doing? Fantastic. What's up, Graham? Good to see you. Hey, great to see you both. Finally, I get somebody uh, on air the same age as me because Rick Doty was too young. Yes. <laughs> Dude, Rick that Doty guy said he said he, he was age. 84. 71. He's not now. Oh, he said 71? It's a tall tale now. Yeah, oh. 71. He even lies he about his age, does he? Yeah. It's oh, funny. that was cold, Graham. That was cold, man. <laughs> yeah, that, you just put a shot right across his bow, man. He's going to be like, yo, we got turned into the wind. That's true. Wow. No one, no one knows how old he is. That's, that's fair. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, Graham, it's a state secret. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. and after we get into the meat and potatoes of this interview, if you have something, if you want to discuss that, or you have some questions, I don't know if you saw the episode, but um, we were we were quite moved and 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 with what not only what he revealed, but the con- the contrition that he showed relative to the mm-hmm. campaign he was involved in, uh, which was a, a part of his job. Yeah, I watched. I watched the first um, half of it. Um, so, and I had I had little time to actually watch the rest of it before advance to this. But yeah, he came he came across quite sensibly, didn't he? Um, he as you say, he was quite contrite. Um, how much of that is an act, and how much of that is that kind of programmed into him? Yeah, I don't know. You know, so I have to bear that in mind. I think when I hear uh, everything that comes out of people like that, yep. but that's their training, isn't it? Um, that's right. So he's a know, mystery wrapped inside is it, is it, an enigma. That's for sure. Yeah, I like, is it I a like... case of these? Sorry, go on. No, no, no. You go ahead, please. Sorry, if he said it was raining, would you have to go outside and check? You know, <laughs> no. it's, it's that kind of thing. You know, sort of thing. No, I, I, I guess I... that's that's being unfair to him, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's being unfair because uh, he said he was quite uh, candid when he said, uh, "How much? How much information do you think that the U.S. government should should reveal to the American people?" And he was quite candid in saying, "You know what? There's a lot of things that they can't people can't know. There's a lot of classified programs that are going on at all these different sites that he mentioned, uh, and that the reverse engineering. We just wouldn't want to release that information. But he said the history of it." From Roswell until now and crashes that happened and what we actually really know, 100%. And I yep. think that's fair. I, I think that's very fair. Because if you yep. asked me that question, I'd say the same thing. Oh, very true. The only, the only thing is with Rick Doty is that because of his track record and what he said in the past and, and what's been sort of you know, proved, then you have to take everything he says with a pinch of salt. So therefore, he can be telling the truth 
99% of the time, there's that 1% and you don't know what that is. And that's the only thing that spoils it for me when I hear him and when I've heard him being interviewed by other people and by yourselves, that just in the back of my mind, that's always, yes, but he said this before. And it's not a trust issue. It's just, you know, a historical issue. And yeah. obviously, because I, I look at kind of things where they've subsequently been proved to be false in my book, where mm -hmm. before they were taken as paragons of virtue or rock solid pieces of evidence. And they right. turn out subsequently not to be. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, you know, Mr. Doughty, is, you know, he's actually had, you know, been proved that he actually did lie on behalf of the government or the, or the Air Force or uh, AFOSI. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you have to then just take with a little pinch of salt everything he says. Again, he could be telling the truth. But how well, do you and, know exactly how much truth that is? Well, I, I can point one example. He's in direct mm. contrast with what the official statement by the government was. Mm. What he told us, I said, give us your percentage he told us about how he was briefed into uh, the crashes and the being that was recovered uh, yeah. and the fact that there was two and one in uh, an even more remote area of New Mexico than Corona, which is very remote. And that's in direct contrast to what the government's party line is. So, mm. you, I, I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, interesting, it's interesting because I feel I feel that the Rick Doty thing to me sort of symbolizes where we are just in general with the topic right so it's mm -hmm. it's almost like he's dotied himself right so like we <laughs> you know you've you've created uh we've gotten to this place and i think he talks about this a little bit in that interview but he hints at it that we've gotten to this place where we all are distrustful of what we hear and i think we we need to be you know we've got to be skeptical uh from what we hear from no matter who is saying it you know it just you can't go into this topic without a, a sort of a curiosity and also a healthy dose of skepticism. And I, I think we kind of, in, in that way, to a certain degree, we kind of owe Rick a little bit of a favor because he's, he's ensured that we're going to look at everything from this uh, vantage point and not take it as gospel right out the gate. And I, I, I would things... go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, 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 I just want things... Yeah. I just want to say sorry. one thing. I wouldn't ask that you take the totality of what he said mm -hmm. and say, I'm going to base it on that. We're, we're also basing it on all the anecdotal evidence from the people that were present at the time, that did interviews at the time. The fact that they actually told us that, that it happened, by the way, was the mm -hmm. first thing. And then they changed the story. And if it's not true, it's if it doesn't make sense, it's because it's not true. Then they built this whole stupid campaign that I just like. <laughs> I laugh at when they talk about weather balloons and the secret yeah. program over it. So when you compile all of that with him, look at it from that angle. What do you think about that, Graham? I think it's true. They've built up, so, as you say, they've built up so many stories. And for him just maybe to cut through that and say, look, it's just that, then that, that's got to count for something. I think he's incredibly brave, actually, to come forward and keep coming forward yeah. after all that's been said and written about him over right. the years. For somebody to still to be there and to take, you know, for people to take pot shots at him uh, in public and in private, you know, that, that, you know that, that's a braver man than I would be. So right. you have to give him that at least. But I still come back to the, you know, the, the kind of, I'm not entirely convinced about mm -hmm. everything he's says and that's sure. all i can say yeah, uh, fair. But, that's, yeah, fair. that's fair enough um but he, mind he, you, he said he doesn't scare easily he told us that <laughs> oh yeah no and, what and he, I, he, I don't think what he, he did would you no yeah i mean just what he was talking about his parrot you know the the, the kind of um the combat controller had. um mm -hmm. yeah exactly um he was talking about the power jumpers as well but the combat control it, you know, it was quite intensive and it was quite a kind of, well, quite a dangerous, for, you know, in, in a sum of dangerous positions. It was one of the da most dangerous because you were right in the front at the first, you know, the, the first uh, hurdle. So right. to somebody to actually do that for, from the get go in the Air Force must have taken a bit of bottle um, uh, to, to, to 
to coin a, a UK phrase. But mm-hmm. you know, so somebody like that then to be picked up by Air Force intelligence, you know, you're going to have to have a bit of you know have some some metal um, that you're not going to you know take kind of uh, sort of slingshots and and, and um, you know harsh words, you know, and just going to shrug them off, aren't you? So agree. Yeah. Yeah, agree. Yeah, I mean, yeah. hey, he's he's got a, his place in UFO history, and that is something that, that we can't change. And I do think it's interesting that he is willing to continue to engage. Uh, I get a sense that that is a mixture of you know genuine interest in the topic itself, as well as uh, at least if you take him at his word, a a sense of um, you know trying to right some of the wrongs of the past. So that he's there's a little bit of a guilty conscience there. I, at least that, that that that's the way that I interpret. What he was it's possible, us. yeah, but yeah. also he was obviously quite heavily invested in, in terms of you know maybe Absolutely. the lies, but he also might have come across some truths on on the road, and he claim and he says he did, so therefore that must pique your interest, even if you yeah. you come into the into without any kind of preconception or even just a negative view of the phenomenon, that must well, change your opinion surely. All of us have lied in our lifetime. Every one of us has been mm. deceptive for one reason or another. He yeah. passed polygraphs that. Basically, the, the highest level polygraph you're going to get is like federal law enforcement, uh, somebody mm-hmm. like Elizondo that gets that level of of, of polygrapher. Um, I've been through one of those, by the way. It's not a very pleasant experience because no, you have to talk about your deepest and darkest secrets. And the key is not what you did. You could tell them. <laughs> let's just say there's there's a there's a, a wide gulf of things you could talk about that you did wrong but you better talk about them because if you don't they're going to say is that all and that's when the little thing goes like that yeah <laughs> so um he he's obviously proved that he could tell the truth his uh his job was to not tell the truth and he's paid the price for that both you know with but uh the man's had a you know state police after that and then teaching yes. college now uh and and uh so i find some credibility particularly when you combine that with all the significant research and anecdotal evidence and the fact that the air force admitted it and when you put all that together did roswell happen i believe it oh yeah 100% me too. yeah 100%. yeah me, me too not necessarily in the exact way that's portrayed by sure. most people but that's that's you know that's just that's by right. the by neither here nor there but also i think people like richard doty you know should you know, should be there we should have people like like we should have skeptics in this people uh, mm-hmm. everybody that we know and love in that kind of side <laughs> with, with people which i'm not going to mention names but we also need people like richard Doty to be part of the conversation That's so right. we can't just lock them away and throw away the key because they did something you know questionable back in the day they are mm-hmm. as you say they're part of the ufo legend if That's nothing right. else and so they, they have an important they have an important important story to tell and then yes. you take out of it what you what you want and, and what you need uh, and what you think's truthful. Mm-hmm. And and Nathan, the thing is, is we have a very limited amount of people that are out in the public space that know. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I I don't. I'm not even sure. Uh, Graham probably knows how many we have that are out in that space. I don't know, but uh, but Rick Rick is one of them that that's yeah. actually been briefed into a program. So thank God we have a few people that are willing to come out that are like, okay, what are you going to do to me? Mm-hmm. You know, at this point, and I'm sure that he's got his life secured in a way that if something were to happen to him, it, it would not be it, it couldn't be obfuscated, not in 2021. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the last thing that I'll say about this and uh, before we uh, change to change topics here is that uh, I think, you know, Rick Doty is a product of American culture. You know, like we, we can't disassociate 
Rick Doty from the state that he served. And so while we can take issue with the things that our states do in our name, uh, we still must recognize that we, whether we like it or not, are citizens in these state powers who have to do things that they think are in the interest of not only state power, but also the protection of their citizens. And we can we can go back and we can, you know, hindsight is always going to be 2020. We can go back and and adjudicate what they did in the past and say, you know what, we I wouldn't have done it that way. And that that wasn't the right thing to do. But at the time, given the mixture of circumstances and everything that was going on, you know, people had to make a decision. They had to make a judgment yeah. call on how to do how to move forward. And, you know, I don't know if I like the call that they made, but it is what they did. And, and now we're going to we're kind of all dealing with the downstream consequences of that. And that's always going to be true. Generations from now will look back at this time and they'll look at what we're doing and saying, you know, I wouldn't have done that. I, I can't believe that they did that. You know, how did they allow that to happen? You know, it, it, we're, we're buried you know, in the time that, that we find ourselves. And that's just the way that that's just unfortunately the way that lot life is. We don't Hard know how many other Richard Doties are out there either, do we? Exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, Graham, I know you're not like a U.S. government expert, but uh, I, I, I basically uh, the last question I asked him, which I now kind of regret, was asking him about MJ-12. In fact, Nathan and I had a conversation yesterday about sometimes things are better left unsaid. Mm -hmm. um, that made him uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. And that was the only time in the in the entire interview that he was out of comfort, which you can read into that. I know what I read into yeah. it, but what's your thought about that construct of being able to deprive people with the need to know information that somebody decided shouldn't be known by people that have a need to know and meet that criteria of, of that uh, specially compartmentalized information? It's, it's interesting how information is disseminated to the people who need to know it, but then the people who don't, they have this kind of cloak of secrecy around it but which has been penetrated quite a few times over the, over the course of history. Now, if you're talking about MJ-12, mm -hmm. that's a different kettle of fish entirely because its own provenance is questionable. Mm -hmm. The delivery method that it got into ufologists' hand, again, is questionable. Talking mm -hmm. about photocopied documents in brown paper envelopes shoved under hotel room doors right. uh, or people's or people's door, um, you know, houses uh, uh, <laughs> was two people, wasn't it yeah? yeah so you've got this kind of weird way that it, it was it, you know they got it out there if that's mm -hmm. what they did and it's all setting up maybe just to set people up for a fall that's right and i know people like kevin randall have done you know significant amounts of work in, in testing you know the kind of what what the the layout and the and the text and the signatures mm -hmm. and and all, everything else to do with it i'm not an mj12 expert but from what i read from him and other people it's again one of those things that you know it's been put out there basically just to send people off you know in the wrong in the wrong direction yeah. uh, for a lot of things and the best way of actually hiding kind of truths is to hide them between you know sorry is to hide to have lies is to hide them between truths That's right. so therefore there, there'll be quite a lot in there which is truthful but that won't be the important stuff you know mm -hmm. it'll be the, you know all the kind of way out there stuff is are the lies and it'll be possibly done for a reason i'm mm -hmm. i'm really when I first heard about MJ, MJ-12 back in the, 90, the early 90s, it was one of those things that was a wow, you know, because I was a bit of a sponge back then and critical thinking when I was younger. Yeah, I, I still had to develop that. Um, but that, that still kind of thought, mm, this is too good to be true. And I still think that now. Um, and I've never come across anything that's sort of like maybe go, no, actually, there is something to this and it's probably real. Yeah. Um, I, I just think it was very convenient 
at the time because ufology was on a bit of a downward spiral at that time and this kind of mm. perked it up not as much yeah. as maybe as the as the 2000 or the 24 uh, 2004 nimitz again count as when they came out in 2017 but mm -hmm. at the time it was quite a big thing i mean we didn't have the internet we didn't have social media back then but for books and magazines it was a huge thing that's right um but i just wonder whether it came out because it was it was a need to feed you know this kind of sort of ufology with something just to throw them off the call because maybe people were getting too close to the truth and here, right. oh, here you know here's something that sends you off in a completely different direction so mm -hmm. we'll hide this even further that you actually you got quite close to mm -hmm. could be something like that well but i don't know i'm just you know talking off the top of my head here but i still yeah. don't i can't i don't find nj12 credible enough to go yeah definitely something to that right let me let me disassociate the name um of of the program and and look at it like this one of the things that that i used to do like when i was in talent twos is like the flight doctor would come around and they'd say or some dv would come around and they'd say hey the person wants to understand how this works and people would say hey dj would, would you uh, explain to me how it works okay you give me 120 seconds we're going to go up to the nose of the aircraft and by the time 120 seconds has elapsed i'm going to have you understand how the tfta radar works and i go ready go and i and i explain to him how tfta radar works i'm not going to do that here but I like to break things down to their simplest form because, quite frankly, I'm a special ed student. I'm not, you know, <laughs> I didn't grow up that bright. Uh, but, uh, and I mean that. <laughs> but here's what I want to explain to you. If you have to try to hide information that people have a need to know, how do you do that? Because Lou should have known. Lou should have been briefed on every single thing that we had related to UFOs. Not just, oh, I went to Bigelow Lab and they showed me a piece of material. But anything and everything that we have, he should have known as part of this program. The SecDef has a need to know. The service, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have a need to know. Um, the directors of the different, what, there's 18 intelligence agencies <laughs> all have a need. And some may know, for all I know. But Lou, you know, Lou indicates, you know, kind of like what he's heard. And then supposedly two guys came in his office that didn't present credentials and opened a folder and then closed it and then left and showed him something and then left. Um, so the way that I would do that is I would create a construct whereby a certain group of people would know and compartmentalize this information. And that way it would only this group of people would know whatever you want to call that group. And then people that do have a need to know won't know. Mm -hmm. That's where there's efficacy. I don't know if it's called, Mary Jane 12, I don't know what the hell it's called or care what it's called, but that's how you would keep things locked away in different facilities around the country without, for example, someone on the intelligence committee who would have a need to know the Senate Intel Committee, what that what those materials are and what kind of funding they're getting. And you heard Christopher Mellon say there's stuff out there and we don't know where it is. Mm -hmm. Christopher Mellon, the yeah. Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. So to me, that says somebody created something. I don't know how many people. It could have been 27 people. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. But somebody created a construct whereby you could compartmentalize a program that everything could be under that program. And then everyone who had a need to know wouldn't have the ability to know, like mm -hmm. the president. Mm -hmm. The original the OCA, the original yeah. classification authority, because what can the original classification authority do if he learns that information, guys? 
He can declassify it. Thank you. Mm. He can declassify it because he can declassify any piece of information that he gets that he wants. So he's the last person that would have knowing anything about the program because he has that power. It's, so it's, layer, upon layer, of, it's layer upon layer of subterfuge and things locked away in these what special access programs and the, um, and the USAPs as well. I can't remember what the U is. Unacknowledged, sorry. So they're, and they're great because apparently in terms of like disclosure because they're free from uh, fire, aren't they? Yeah, they? They don't have to submit to that process. So they're, they're the perfect place to hide things away. And have people signed into those programs where there's no public acknowledgement of what they do, and that could be something that's gone on. I, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure when special access programs were invented or when they started, mm -hmm. but that must be something that's been ongoing for you know quite a long time, um, and that'll be where all these things hide and reside. And the people who, as you say, need have a need to know, that's where they're read into and say, right, this is what you have, but compartmentalized information i mean that goes back to what the manhattan project isn't it so that was a way where they had you know people didn't know what other people were working on even though <laughs> they were working on on overall the same thing and of course you have you know there'll be other projects like that throughout history where people were working on little bits of a set of, of an overall problem um, because that's the best way to stop everybody from knowing actually what's happening and you have just have a few people who who actually know, you know the gist of it um, so they probably learned from all the stuff back in, in the war in terms of the Manhattan Project, how to set up something really secret and keep everybody from knowing what everybody else was doing yeah. and the general public from knowing at all what was happening. Yeah. That's it. You and know, then so. you put out what you want. You chaff what exactly. you want. You could put that's out right. a whole disinformation thing that's called yep. MJ-12 that maybe there's, as I said, there could be 27 people. There could be five. Mm -hmm. people. Who knows? I have no idea. Yeah. I'm just saying that you would have to have a construct like that to up to obscure that information from people who have a legitimate need yep. to know and right. i if you want me to answer that i will get back with you personally graham and i'll find out uh from my intel friends when uh saps were created and 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 all that i just i don't know that answer because i was too focused on my tasks <laughs> when i was in the game so <laughs> Nice. Well, I see we have a special guest in the background. Oh, should we oh. should we bring bring this person on? Yeah, bring him on and say All something right. to Graham Randell. Here we go. Hello. Hey, hey Graham. Hey, hey, hey Chris. Up? Hey, Graham. How's it going? Hello. I'm yeah. fine. Thank you. Uh, yeah. we, we spoke on the phone a few weeks ago, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for your help. And uh, it's good to yeah. see you in, in person. See. Yeah, you too. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, happy to be here. I was, just tra I was traveling. I'm in uh, Colorado Springs, actually. What? Wow. Yeah, DJ's like, hey, can you... Can you come on this podcast? I was in bed. I was totally. I was still asleep. Yeah, uh, jet lag you, like crazy. It was like, oh man. Oh, man. Wow. I would love to. Who's Graham's on there? I would love to love to talk to him. So thanks, Good thanks for having me on. Are you going to speak at the academy? What are you doing? Chris? No, not at all. It's a uh, it's a reunion. Uh, it was my twenty year reunion. Well, it was actually uh, last year, but it got canceled. And, and so there was two classes here. It was fun to come back. I hadn't been back and since I got married here, actually. Um, so it's been nice. You got married in the chapel? We did. Yeah. Oh, that chapel is amazing. Chapel. Oh. Yeah, the swords, you know, they hold the swords up and you go underneath and then the, the last guy slaps your wife's butt on it with a sword. You know, it's, <laughs> that's great. There's no way that's going to last. They probably, they probably yeah, already, yeah. already canceled it. It's continuing stuff. that tradition, yep. Yeah. <laughs> They've done away with that. That is awesome, man. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so Nathan's going to dive in. Chris, do you, do you have a question? Or you just kind of want to be part of the I was just watching Catching Up. Okay. Um, I haven't okay. read your book, Graham. I'm, I'm excited to read it, actually. Right. Um, I, my question was, do you think, 
you know, kind of on that same that same strain you were just talking about. Uh, do you think that these are uh, human systems? You know, has it been, could it be possible that some of this technology has been you know, squirreled away and then actually stolen, if you will, to the public sector, you know, private, essentially, uh, through some, you know, I guess, rogue bands. Is, is that what you're kind of thinking? What, what do you think is uh, is all, all of these sightings that we're seeing? In terms of some of the the, the recent things, then it, the, the, the sort of distinction between what, you know, can be man-made and what people are seeing, that's getting quite blurred now. So the technology in terms of drones and you know and hypersonic vehicles and all the rest of it, that's closing the gap between what people are seeing and traditionally have seen throughout the, the decades and what we're you know capable of actually putting together. Now that can't be true, however, for back in the war, which is what I've written about, and for the reasons I go into the book, because if you look at the history of um, you know German secret weapons and, and what was built in terms of jet aircraft and rocket-powered aircraft, and then the types of missiles and other things that they were coming up with, there's no way that that that, that technology could have accounted for the type of sightings that were being reported, not just on a on an occasional basis, but quite quite often. And, and could you tell, Chris, uh, I, I, I listened to some of your interviews. Um, could you tell them about what, you know, some of the compelling ones where uh, basically, so we're going into Graham's book and, and Nathan, it, it's called, um, say what it is again. UFOs before Roswell. There's what it is. <laughs> yeah. And there's, you can see the Foo Fighters on the cover. It's a, yeah. it's Dan a beautiful did book. a great job on your, your so cover. The cover there. So that's Dan Zetterstrom and uh, Olaf yeah. Rockner. Yes. And I'll talk about this one because this is March 1942. So the, the what was the accepted wisdom about the start of the Foo Fighters was November 1944. And for about 50 years, people that, people thought that's when it started. But actually, it started a lot earlier. Um, so if you go to the RAF records and, and, and sightings, you'll find out that you can push that date much further back. So this is March 1942. It's a month after the so-called Battle of Los Angeles, where that mm. mystery object you know, had 1,400 um, rounds of anti-aircraft um, you know, aimed at it and fired mm -hmm. at it, and nothing happened. And it flew all the way down past Long Beach and, and further south, and then came back again uh, up the coast. And so if that had been a balloon, it would have been shredded by that much uh, AA. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't send aircraft up after it for some strange reason. Uh, but again, it was really early in the war for the, for the American, for the local air defenses. Uh, and I don't think they really got their act together at that stage, but there were, there were plenty of war nerves. But this is a month afterwards. And this is a, an RAF Wellington bomber which is flying to Essen in the Ruhr in Germany, and they just dropped the bombs on the target, and they're turning for home. And they're just getting out of the target area, and this is actually a Polish crewed Wellington because there were various po Polish volunteer squadrons in the RAF. It was 301 squadron. And the, the rear gunner noticed some a copper-colored disc-shaped light coming up behind them. He shouted a warning to the pilot through the intercom, and the pilot said to him, look, you know, if it gets you know, too close, open fire at it, because everybody just thought it was a night fighter, it was a Luftwaffe night fighter. Mm. What else would it be? Things like flying saucers, UFOs, all that kind of thing. Those words weren't in people's lexicons. They mm. weren't even on their radar. That was for five years in the future. So the gunner, Julie, opened fire with, you know, with, with the, the, the bullets from his 303, uh, .303 inch um, machine guns in, the, in, his, um, in, his, in his tail turret. Mm. And you can see the tracer um, going out at this, this light. And the bullets and just went into it, and nothing happened. <laughs> nothing happened. It's crazy. It just it just sat there at a, at a set distance from the tail of the aircraft, 
And then after a while, so you squirt, you know, they didn't hose pipe rounds of these things. You know, you, they conserved ammunition, so it was short bursts of ammunition. But every time they were fired, the, the gunner fired it, it just went in and, well, absorbed it, for want of a better phrase. Because mm. what else happened? There was no damage. The, the thing didn't fall out the sky. It didn't fall away in flames. It didn't move out the way. It just took the punishment. So after a little while, it then moved around to the wingtip of the aircraft and sat there. Now, I did a bit, you're in that, formation, um, Chris, with a UFO. <laughs> now, according to the pilot, who was the person who, who was the witness who reported the incident, he then said that both the tail and the nose guns, because it was they didn't have dorsal turrets on these aircraft, it was just a, a front and a back turret. Mm. They both could aim and fire at the object at the same time. Now, I did a bit of trigonometry because the, the actual capabilities of the tail turret, so you didn't shoot your tail off, meant that you could only fire to a certain degree, and it was mm. about 89 degrees. So I worked out that this thing had to be 1500 yards off the off, off the port wing of the air of the wing of the aircraft before they could open fire it but they could it was possible but it had to be a bit of a distance so i'm reading between the lines here a bit and it might be a little bit of exaggeration so at one point either they were firing together or at separate stages but at one point certainly the nose gun started firing at the um at this light uh, that would have been the navigator uh, or the bomb aimer because they had like a dual role uh, there was no nose gunner as such they had to fill in for that that detail and then again, it was firing, and the light and the bullets just went into the light. Nothing happened. It then moved around the front of the aircraft and maintained position, a set distance away from the, from the nose of the aircraft, and just you know they were pacing it as and it was effectively flying backwards uh, or whatever because they were following it through the skies over Germany, and then it just shot off in the distance at a forty-five degree angle and it was lost to sight within seconds. So that's one of the first stories. Um, I have one question. For you. Uh, yeah, go on. Yeah, do you know, um, so the bullets, right? When they see the bullets going mm. off and you have the tracers, you know, you have bullet yes. jobs, so it's pretty obvious. Did they see them stop at the object, you know, or did they see it go through? You know, because you could, if or, it's just like a light or something, you could see it go through. I understand. Yeah, I understand yeah. the bullet drop. All I can say is that the tracers, they saw them enter the, the, the light. And nothing, and nothing leave, I guess, or maybe they couldn't. And see nothing, no, it. and nothing coming out the other side, or you know, or fragments coming off the light uh, in case they hit an aircraft or anything like that. It literally just sat there and took it, um, which to them was really strange. You know, it was terrifying, presumably, because if it was yeah. any kind of enemy weapon and you're firing at it and it's invulnerable, then you've got a big problem. Um, now, not only had that aircraft's crew seen this light, but the Wellington bomber in the form in the stream of aircraft over Germany behind them might have been a mile or two away, but they saw the light as well behind the aircraft. When they got back to the to base for the debriefing, the pilot of the aircraft would have the sighting and then fired at the aircraft. They, they obviously talking to the intelligence officer for the debrief, and he turned around and said to them, have you been drinking? Because that was a standard response for things like this. There was a stigma back then. Yes. You know, that, that stigma stays today. But that was also, this is an early version of it. They were told either you're seeing things or are you um, wanting to get away from flight duties like Lacamora Fiber because you were, you were branded as a coward because mm. the RAF had this particular way that if you didn't want to do flight duty anymore because you were volunteering, then you were effectively unfit for combat, but you would be reduced to the ranks. And that's what they did. And they put like white bands around your, your cap and things like that. And you were basically the lowest of the low on a station. So, um, you know, people didn't want to go through that. So people usually kept quiet about such things. Um, now, 
and mo- in a lot of the fighter squadrons, and particularly one seventy-three squadron which flew hurricanes on the North African front, they were flying night intruder missions over um, various parts of the, the, the Western Desert. Now, they their pilots, and this was a single-seat fighter for ground attack aircraft, uh, ground attack aircraft with armed with twenty millimeter cannon. Now, their pilots had seen what they called the light, and that was an RAF nickname for these things. But there was a lot of ridicule in the squadron because, you know, if, you, if somebody, one of your mates, one of your colleagues comes up and says, you know, I've been chased around by this light and I can't get it off my tail. Um, I fired it and nothing happened. Then, you know, well, you know, have you been drinking? You know, are you seeing things? Uh, are you going mad? All this kind of stuff. There was, there was a lot of stick. There was a lot of this kind of uh, ridicule and a lot of uh, name calling and all this. So people shut up. But actually, this particular squadron, most of the pilots ended up seeing it. And there's one particular story. It was actually in a letter that uh, one of the former pilots wrote to the New Zealand Air Force. Hmm. In, in, oh, excuse me. He's probably getting a call. Oh, okay. So what I want to ask, and, and Chris, I don't know if this popped into your mind, but in terms of debrief of a crew aircraft, I know something you're not all that, uh, that part of it, but did, did he get back up on that? Like, in other words, did the rest of the crew go, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that happened. Because you get one or two defectors, and you're screwed if you got, like, a six- or seven-person crew. Yeah, because if, if one of them says, I didn't see anything, does that shut down the whole discussion? You know, well, I've never been you... in a crew debrief, uh, crew mm. aircraft debrief. I don't know. Every yeah, single flight. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least in AFSOC, every single flight. So is that what – you guys just talk at the end so i yeah oh, it's my brutal. question to graham would have been like how many people is in the is on a crew you know i'm just curious yeah. you know is it so, sorry about that um, seeing it, you know and then they discuss cook. no problem graham yeah they discuss yeah. uh hey did you guys see that off the left wing and then you know is it one person that says oh, i, I thought it was what? a flying candle you know <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah or i didn't see anything <laughs> it was just a shine it was a bright light or something a star mm-hmm. um and then that shuts it down you know is there like a is there a, a I guess a, a mind meld at the end of the debrief, you know, which could could make it go the wrong way. You know, if they're like, oh, I, one guy's like, hey, I saw a light out there. Right. And you could say that, well, he talked him into saying that they see this object, you know. I was just curious, Graham, how many people are on a crew? Five. Um, okay, five people. Awesome. Yeah. But they all saw yeah. it, all of the pilots? According to that, it was the the the, the tail gunner, the, the, the bomb aimer who was filling in for the, for the nose gunner and the pilot, they all reported it. So... Uh, you know, make of that what you will. Um, in terms of the one, the, sorry, the story I was I, I got interrupted because my my, head, my headphones and my earbuds decided to give up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, seventy three squadron in North Africa, and this particular pilot wrote to the New Zealand Air Force in nineteen fifty five after a particular sighting, and he said, "Look, you might be interested in, the, in this details." And he was flying over the desert one night on a, on a raid against German targets, and he was again followed by one of these lights, and he, and it was just sitting off his wingtip all the time, and he managed to get. Because it's re- he said his reactions were slow and slow enough that occasionally he could actually get behind it and open fire at it. So several times he opened fire with, with these twenty, these four twenty millimeter cannon that he had under you know on the wings. Again, to no effect. The light just stayed there, and it followed him as far as the, his front line, and then it sort of faded out, but not mm. completely. And then he turned back to try and resume his mission, and it was back again. So. For a German secret weapon, it wasn't particularly effective because it wasn't doing anything to him, was it? You know, and also with the one uh, over Essen, you know, if, if this was some kind of German anti-aircraft rocket or some kind of scam device, 
what what was it doing what was it accomplishing right. <laughs> you know it hadn't it hadn't stopped the the the, the polish crew dropping their bombs on the target mm-hmm. it was you know it was there afterwards it didn't destroy the aircraft because they came back to tell the tale so what was it you know if it was something german what was its purpose other than just to give them a bit of a fright well they got frights anyway you know mm-hmm. that was that was just like standard procedure for every every night they flew over germany or anywhere else you know they, they were scared out of their wits most of the time so it was it, you know it was a case of well yeah there's so what are these so i go through those kind of things in the book to say well why why do these things not do anything beyond just fly around on wingtips and, and, and scare people they don't mm-hmm. do anything offensive and that's actually where a lot of the the kind of questioning went because some intelligence officers, one particular one, said, "Look, you know, did it do anything to your aircraft?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, "Well, no, it just followed us." Well, it's not a very, it's not a very good weapon, then, is it? You know, that's the, <laughs> the kind of thing they were saying. You know, so right, it, it's it's a it's a conundrum. It, it, right. it really well, is a conundrum. And Graham, I guess I have a question about this. So, do you, in your estimation, do you feel that over time? Uh, this began to get underreported. So because it was benign or, or deemed to be benign uh, after maybe a, f- a few reports, do you think that the actual record is uh, is is less uh, stacked than it really should have been? It's difficult to work that out, Nathan, because um, the nature, I mean, in terms of just looking at Royal Air Force uh, records, the official records for the mission logs, it's very patchy. So um, I've looked at American records, so I can I know the difference. But in terms of the RAF, the bomber units, then it was all down to almost the whim of the officials who were writing up the reports. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, they'll go through the debrief process, but how much of that information went into the official um, mission sort of statements for each mm-hmm. each raid for each aircraft mm-hmm. was very patchy. So you take one particular bomber squadron, and you would get a um, seven or eight line summary for each aircraft on each raid. And that would include what, you know, sort of takeoff time, landing time, time to drop the bombs, whether they saw any searchlights, uh, flak, um, anything else unusual, the kind of targeting flares that they used and all this kind of thing. That was standard practice. Mm-hmm. And then they would also have bits of the, the other stuff, the anomalous stuff, which I've mm-hmm. picked out for the book. Now, other squadrons, you would just get a summary for the raid, which would encompass all the aircraft, which could be anything up to 18 aircraft from one squadron. Mm. And that would just be maybe two or three paragraphs, but for all 18 aircraft rather than one per, per aircraft. Mm-hmm. And then some squadrons, you hardly got anything at all. You'd look if you got a couple of lines and then mm-hmm. some you got none at all. So those those th- last three categories, which I've just described there, who knows what was in you know behind those reports? Because there's right. just no information to go on. So, Nathan, I can't really answer that question with any degree of certainty because sure. I've only got a very small subset of information to be able to go on. And I don't know what's behind the others. So, so Graham, it, you could be right, but I don't know. This is actually emblematic of the entire UFO topic because when you go to debrief, and, and Chris, Chris understands this, and Intel takes a, takes a debrief report or they ask you to fill out whatever forms they have and then they attach that to whatever forms, you know, whatever uh, you told them. Whatever that Intel chief or his eight or up the line at the, the squadron level, group level, command level decides to do with that is what we're all going to see. And if somebody decides that that information goes away because they consider it, it looks like my crews are crazy. Uh, You have three of them that said they, and we we talked about this when you're off headset on a crew aircraft, it's very important to have unanimity. So if you, If, if, if you come back and you debrief something and everyone else says, Hey, I didn't see it. You're kind of standing out there in the cold and being the flight engineer out of seven, there's two pilots there's Navi Ewo, which are basically both navigators, 
and two loadmasters. So the flight engineer is by himself. So if you disagree, they all just go like this. <laughs> and so at debrief, what Chris was asking, that would have been very interesting if you had two or three guys that saw it and, and maybe two that said, hey, I didn't see anything. Now, also, that, that attacks the credibility. I'm sorry. There are, no, that's fine. There is a, another report of another bomber crew who saw something anomalous, again, a bit later in the war, 1943. But, but because of the positions of some of the crew, they weren't in a position to be able to see it anyway because they would be, like a navigator, would actually be any station in the nose of the aircraft. But in terms of having windows, etc., they weren't necessarily looking out all the time because there were heads over the maps and the charts. Uh, and they were too busy working things out with slide rules and all the rest of it back then. So... There's a couple of cases where maybe um, a navigator, but also somebody else in the aircraft didn't actually see it, whereas another five did because some of these aircraft were, had seven crew on board, like a Lancaster or a Halifax. So you did have, you have cases where you know one or two people didn't actually see it, but the majority did. So you, you possibly have to go with that. It, it might be a different story nowadays in terms of you know seeing something and if not everybody sees it, then there's some question as to are everybody just playing some kind of game or any kind of mind game with people. But back then, if somebody said that they saw something, then it was it was you know, it was taken fairly seriously because everything might have been a secret weapon, and mm -hmm. there was a lot of that because they all wanted information about potential you know new developments in in, in warfare. Um, there is actually analysis from 1940, and this is going back quite early. There's no particular information about cases, but intelligence reports from back then state about peculiar incidents, and that's the phrase they use. But they also then say that in most of the cases, only one person in the aircraft saw it. And, there, and because some of the crew, bear in mind the crews were much smaller back in the early days of the war. Some of those aircraft, the bomber aircraft, sometimes only four, three or four people on board. Mm. So... But in, in many cases, it was, it was technically said it was 92%. There was only one person involved in the sighting. But in, so, so in some, they did have multiple witnesses. But that obviously increased as the war went on. The aircraft got bigger, got heavier, and they had more crew on board. Um, and in some of the American, there's a, an American uh, anti-submarine aircraft. It was actually a U.S. Army Air Force aircraft, not a U.S. Navy one, over the Bay of Biscay in November of 1942. And apparently everybody on the aircraft saw it. And they even took pictures of it. And that was, a, again, something that came, a, a big kind of um, object or a disc that came up behind an aircraft over the Bay of Biscay of France. Um, and so there was one particular person on the, on the aircraft took a picture of it or several pictures, but those pictures have never turned up. And, mm -hmm. you know, DJs, you say, if the higher ups, when you get back and you have a debrief, they just squirrel it away and they don't want anybody to know. Well, of course, you're never going to find out, are you? It's just going to get locked away. Now, having said that, some enlightened, I suppose you could use that term, um, senior officers, not, not just at squadron level, but also at group level, because um, the RF bomber fleet was organized into a series of like half a dozen or maybe more squadrons that made up a group of aircraft. And there were several groups of bombers of bomber, uh, in RF bomber command during the war. There's a particular incident which happened in November 1942 over northern Italy, where a aircraft flying from England, which was attacking an engine factory in Turin, hmm. came across a 200 foot long torpedo shaped object over mm. the alps wow <laughs> yeah quite large mm -hmm. they saw it twice the first the second time they saw it flying up a mountain valley hmm. so, uh, much oh. lower down that's so independence that, day stuff right there man that is that's wild that's... now that so take that story you know whichever way you want but the the important thing is that when they got back to base they were taken seriously mm -hmm. not just by the squadron leader in, char in charge of the unit but that information was passed up to group level 
And despite the, the rejoiner on the, on the letter when it passed up even further up the chain, because you can only go so far with information in terms of official records and communiques, but there is a, a rejoiner on, on the information they pass on says, despite the level of ridicule that the, the crew have been subjected to, they stand by their story. Hmm. Wow. So that That's has to for something. Yeah, so that was obviously recognized by the senior officers, not just at squadron level, but at group level, and they did pass it on. Now, what happened to that um, information and what analysis was done? I couldn't find anything. The, the paper trail goes cold at mm. that point. That's and a surprise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Graham, you mentioned mm. uh, that, that they shoot at it. You know, this yes. is, and, and actually, it's kind of the first response I, <laughs> I have. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of like a dog. You know, how does a dog interact with the environment? It just bites, mm. you know, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, it's mm -hmm. like how it's kind of the only way to interact. You know, first, I'm going to try on the radio. You know, is, hey, is it communicating at all on the radio? And then I'll try and maybe get closer to it to, you know, is it reacting to me? Um, but then, you know, assuming I can actually fire my weapon, which, you know, in World War II, I think they were probably just doing it for fun sometimes or at least tested. Uh, then I think I would be shooting next. You know, do, do you find that's the normal reaction? Like, is everybody shooting at these things or is that Not a everybody. rare occasion? It was more to do with the fact that because they that everything that they thought they saw, that they were seeing was a was a German night fighter or some kind of you know aerial device, mm -hmm. then if it got close enough within range and effective range, they would open fire at it. And obviously, the, the, I think the machine guns they had were effective up to uh, over a thousand yards. But uh, sorry, they could fire over a thousand yards, but that wasn't effective range. The effective range was much closer. Mm. So we'd often wait. They'd often wait until they got you know much much closer. I think you're talking about 400 yards or less. Mm -hmm. And and the actual German night fighters themselves would position themselves behind and below the aircraft, and then fire sort of uh, in a diagonal kind of like attack at the at the you know the base uh, below the aircraft until they got those upward firing guns, the Schreit music, uh, the, the jazz music guns that they called them. That was a special field modification, and they mm. were upward firing guns at an angle of 45 degrees or something, and they would just fly underneath the fuel tanks between the the engines and the fuselage and just open fire and that would just blow the aircraft up you know sort of thing so that was quite an effective weapon so there was different ways they did it but anything that they saw closing on the aircraft of course they were going to open fire on it because it was potential something sure. that would shoot them down you know so there was no kind of we'll radio them find out who they are we'll we'll, we'll see how close they get and then we can determine what they are if they got close enough effective range open fire it was standard practice and you mm. mentioned a lot of this was at night you know mm. um it was all at then night. we all at night, I guess. At, at that time of the war, definitely, yes. Yeah, but then we went to daylight, what is it, high altitude, precision bombing, daylight, yeah. you know, which was... January 1943. And, and so did they see... Do we have continued uh, sightings? You know, so you have a different you have different phenomenon for the for the U.S. Army Air Force flying daylight raids over Germany. Yeah. Now, bearing in mind, the, the with a few exceptions, the the U.S. Army Air Force didn't fly at night yeah. um, that much. That, that I think early it was a war. terrible idea as well. If I remember <laughs> looking back, like they could just got yeah. shot, shot to hell. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the, anyway, Americans, yeah. the attrition oh, yes, rate. The was... Americans did. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say the attrition rates were mm. uh, scaringly, scaringly high, very high. Yeah, mm. the Americans did actually try it to start with, but they, they, it didn't work for them because of the particular way they flew and the particular equipment they had and the aircraft they used, what weren't suitable really for nighttime operations. So. They did actually decide to do it in the daytime. And from 40, and January 43, they flew daylight raids over Germany. Um, and they were much better suited to that than our aircraft because our aircraft were optimized for night. 
but they started seeing strange things, but not lights because they wouldn't see lights in the daytime. They started things that were and they had some really weird names, which actually appear in all the official records. So you're looking at squadron level, you're looking sometimes at um, at group level or even at wing level, and you'll have things like co um, cottonwool cotton wool balls, swarms hmm. of bees. Huh. That's two of the, the, the and then you know there's other things as well. And there was um, silver spheres they saw. Now none of these can be sort of like sort of attributed to German secret weapons, any kind of flak rockets or um, aircraft or, or other kinds of flak, just like general anti-aircraft uh, in terms of the explosions, because the RAF, Bomber Command Operational Research um, Section, did huge amounts of research on how effective the German anti-aircraft defenses were. Not just, you know, just once, once or twice, but every month, right through the wall. And mm -hmm. those reports, you can read through them. And that's where you get the reports of all the strange stuff as okay. well. That's how you yeah. found the info. Well, obviously. that's how you find them. But also in the American reports, so if you go through the um, American, the Air Force Historical Research Agency at Maxwell Air Force Base, you can get a hold of the American equivalents, or at least the stuff from kind of um, you know, squadron and group level. And they have you know, reports of these weird things as well. And they do a little bit of analysis by a squadron and group level, but they get nowhere. Um, and sometime uh, later in the war, when they started seeing things at night, so the, the night fighter squadrons that were based in Europe start, started seeing things over um, eastern France, eastern Belgium, and western Germany. They then started pushing requests up the chain of command to find out what these things were. Um, and actually, at the end, the US Army Air Force, in terms of tactical air command level, passed it on to the British Air Ministry. Because they didn't have the, the necessary analytical skills, presumably, why else would they pass it to the British? They they thought they had a particular skill set in terms of intelligence to try and get a hold of, you know, get their heads wrapped around the problem. Um, the actual the British Air Ministry turned around in February, in March nineteen forty five and said they're just measured with two six twos. That was the a German jet fighter. That's what they hmm. said. They weren't. And you know, there's there, there's like three other places that that I want to go in in general terms. Uh, one of the things I, I'm going to want to do is to try to draw a parallel of why people should find this important to the conversations that we're having today about craft we're seeing today. And I think Graham will be able to draw this sort of direct line mm -hmm. from 1943 until now. And the other part of it is I kind of want to get what Graham feels. Uh, what's, in, what's important to him? What's striking to him? Uh, that's that's uh, happening in the topic overall. What intrigues him? Uh, what are the areas that that he's focused on? And I also, for my brother Chris, I think you and I, it's going to be incumbent upon us. This is just a way, aside from this interview, is to reach back to the Air Force community and try to find out if anything's being briefed about. Hey, look out for this. Hey, this is a thing, or we're not talking about it. And. I, if we can figure out a way without looking like crazy people to have that discussion, which is, you know, people are going to look at us like that. And I'll try from my end, and I'd love it if you tried from your end. But that's out and away from this, this particular interview. But, Graham, what do you think that people should draw from what happened back then and how pertinent that is to what we're seeing today? Because you can sort of – in my mind, you can sort of draw this line. Well, if they're seeing these kind of like tic-tac-shaped craft back then, then that means or, that didn't just appear like in 2014. Yeah, and, and, and I'm curious too, sort of you know, the, the theories that you have that, that seem most plausible. And then the other thing that comes to mind for me is this topic of 
presence. And that is that in the in the war, uh, it was probably the first time in history where we had a high density presence in the air. Um, and so we're in an environment that we were not normally in. And then we were seeing things. And so that's a similar sort of story we hear now about uh, our ability to sense what is in our environment, our ability to gather intelligence about what is occurring in our operating spaces. And I just wonder if there is some sort of correlation there. Uh, are we navigating in spaces that uh, we're not accustomed to, but because we are now present in them, we're now just able to see what is happening? Yeah. So in terms of, uh, I'll answer that question as, as well as, as, as DJs too. For 50 years, the Foo Fighters were effectively the, the Cinderella of ufology. Mm -hmm. There was something that just everybody thought was a very, very localized, very narrow focus phenomenon, which had a few sightings in a certain part of Europe over a very, very constricted time frame. And that was all because of a couple of factors. One, because there was only a limited number of sightings available to the public, and they came from a magazine article that was published in December 1945 by an aide to General Hap Arnold, who was the head of the US Air, uh, Army Air Force during World War II. And that, with a couple of other sightings in this article, it was about nine in total. And that was the sum total of everything to do with the Foo Fighters up until about 1995, with a few exceptions. There's a couple of other stories came out through UFO newsletters and some other uh, limited public uh, run publications and a few other outlets, um, some UFO books in the, in the 80s and 90s. So you had about maybe couple of dozen at the most cases hmm. but that's all there were until about 1995 and there'd been no real attempts to actually verify a lot of the details in them unlike quite a lot of other cases of people that tried to search through documents to try and back some of these stories up but nothing had been done by the Foo Fighters you were lucky you could find a book that actually had mention of them never mind any kind of analysis now in 1995 uh, citizens against ufo secrecy who was a pressure group they managed to get into the war diaries for the 415th night fighter squadron which was one of the units in europe that, uh, that actually encountered the foo fighters and one of their personnel actually came up with that name for mm. for the phenomenon actually they called it something else that had a name at the start which you can't use on family tv um but uh, <laughs> uh, our family show <laughs> yeah okay so um but that, that's by the by so this kind of limited pheno um, phenomenon like you know it's got this 50-year baggage behind it where nothing really was done in terms of trying to work out the scale of it not mm. just in terms of its geographical kind of spread, but also its time frame. So everybody just thought it was from November 1944 for six months to the end of the war. Um, and then in 1995, people got into the war diary, so they could start to corroborate the stories that were already there. And they did that. And mm. then there were some other stories came out as well. Um, now, one of the things is that, you know, are you saying this is a kind of... Um, a, you know, just a progression from the war and it's carrying on today? Well, that's true, probably, because the spread of the Foo Fighters during the Second World War is much wider than people, you know, sort of believe. When I started doing some of the research for the book, I started digging into the RAF records quite deeply. And bomber squadrons that were based in Italy, that were working over the Balkans during 1944. And there are tons of reports of mystery lights, hmm. uh, air, lights that surround aircraft, six or more at a time sometimes, or things that are flying, whizzing through the skies. Now, the, air, now the Germans did actually have air-to-air -air rocket mortars but they only ever used them in the daytime, whereas these are being seen at night. And they didn't have any operational flak rockets, so they didn't have any aircraft rockets or you know, service-to-air missiles, things like that. And they didn't have any air-to-air -air missiles either that actually worked. So you have to wonder what these things were. And this is a part of the war where it was a backwater in terms of modern technology for the war, 
where mm-hmm. you know they didn't send all their best equipment out to the likes of Hungary or Romania or Bulgaria, and yet mm-hmm. these are places where these strange things are being seen. So mm-hmm. you have to take all that in the round. Wow. Um, okay. So then also, if you look at some other um, kind of cases, they're from the Bay of Biscay, which I mentioned before, right across the Eastern Front, because they were, they were seen there. They were seen apparently in Norway, right across North Africa. So you're looking right across Europe. So it's mm-hmm. not just a few American night fighter crews seeing them over a certain part of Western Germany, et cetera, et cetera. It's much widespread, more widespread than that, rather. But also, as I mentioned before about the March 1942 story, you can set the time you know, frame much further back as well as previously been sort of uh, suggested. So mm-hmm. it's widespread. And then if you take, which I didn't cover in the book because it's just about European cases, mm-hmm. but they've got all the stories from the Pacific as well, and mm-hmm. the Far East. And also ones in continental United States as well. There, there are other stories. There's quite a lot of them. Um, so Can I pitch in real quick? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, it just reminds me of, uh, I was just researching a, a similar case in 67, uh, famous in Portugal, hmm. which is just like, uh, like you mentioned, there's these uh, six lights, you know, it's around a, a four ship of, uh, they look like uh, T-37s actually. But uh, anyway, <laughs> around a four ship of their fighters, uh, it's a famous case in Portugal where it just has these six lights, you know, change different colors and they're just flying all around. Um, and it, it just kind of thought why this is so kind of powerful for me, your your book, Graham, is because, um, you know, and again, I, I didn't really believe anything till May. And then it came out, these these videos. And up until now, you could just say, OK, it was the pilots just seeing things, mm-hmm. you know, they're just seeing lights. You could You could kind of discount it that way. But now with the videos that came out, now they're like, wait a minute, we have videos that they're actually seeing something. <laughs> right yeah. so this is kind of yeah. the first where i kind of locked down that hey they're actually seeing something um and now when we go back and look uh now you can't just make the argument that it was the pilots kind of just miraculously seeing yeah. invisible things in their brains um you know now it's like hey now we have to go back and, it, and that just means so much more to me now you know that mm. that it's been basically we have video evidence now so when we go back and it just makes it so powerful because uh, you can't say it's a hoax either, right? Because now in today's age, you could basically make, you could make an argument um, that there's technologies that could have been produced by 2021 that you could maybe do, you know, can make holograms or there's like this laser mm-hmm. technology that can like supposedly make sounds at a distance. You, know, you mm-hmm. could actually transmit sounds at a distance through lasers. Um, but back then, there's no such no, no such true. case. So no possibility. No. That's really mm-hmm. what makes it strong for me. Interesting to hear that that these these lights are all over all over uh, oh, the world as well. But by the way, Chris, uh, do we have any idea like how many sightings the Chinese Air Force has had? <laughs> the no Thai idea. Air Force, yeah, the Indian no. Air Force. I I mean, I would think we would know the new what the, what's going on in New Zealand. I mean, there's so many countries that we have no idea. The hmm. Egyptian Air Force. I mean, we could go on down the line with guys that are and gals that are flying sorties every single day and every hmm. night that are having sightings and we don't have access to that data. But I, I mean, come on, this is a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, is, yeah. you know, people could focus on the US government all they want. There are hundreds of governments that are not talking about it. And we know that sightings are occurring because while their military is not talking about it, their civilians are and they're posting them on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the so Graham, why do you think they're not talking about it? I guess, you know, what, what happened between when you said 40, 47, I guess, and then 95, you know, what was that big gap? What do you, what do you think? Mm-hmm. It may be that they came in, in possession of some information and they just got so scared that they want nobody needs to, nobody can know about this, but it could be something else. Um, I, I'm, I'm not great at kind of throwing out theories about why things happen. 
I deal if you read the book, you'll see I deal with nuts and bolts, things sure. I can prove, things I can sort of talk with with any great you know kind of conviction. Whereas when I start to think about things a bit more kind of more blue sky thinking, I'm a bit less like kind of certain about what why, and I just get to the point where I go, I don't know. And mm -hmm. I, it's all right to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but that's as far as I get half the time because I'm not privy to the information. I'm not privy to the details. And I, sometimes I don't even know the motivation You know, because I might be able to put myself in people's shoes, but then I might come up with a different sort of answer that somebody else does back then. So I don't mm -hmm. know. In terms of the wartime sightings, they're basically a microcosm of whatever's happened afterwards. So yes, okay, modern ufology starts in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold and with Roswell. But actually... The kind of things that were seen during the war, the lights, the some like kind of cigar-shaped objects, torpedoes, and other things. There was something like an upturned bathtub that was seen mm -hmm. in Russia over Russia, mm -hmm. watching a battle one day. Things like that, <laughs> you know, they're kind of things that have been seen like since as well, uh, and at various times, you know, from 1947 onwards. So really, maybe people should think about setting that clock a little bit further back. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know why they do it for 1947, because it's all to do with the A-bomb, you know, explosions and, and the tests and all that kind of thing. But really, you know, nuclear fission was invented in 1938. The, the, the Manhattan Project kicked off in 1942. So if somebody is, let's say for argument's sake, somebody's watching us and watching our development, they probably knew that, you know, people were mucking about with, you know, atomic fission long before we actually managed to get a bomb put together. So... Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to go down that kind of road, then you have to probably credit them with a little bit more intelligence. And, and they were probably watching us long before that we actually, you know, before the Trinity test. Mm -hmm. So that that that's possibly the way I look at it. But I don't really go that too far into that kind of right realm of you know, sort of thinking in the book. I'd rather just limit it to look; these things happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in historical records. Never mind people just coming forward and telling you know their stories. You know, maybe a few years or ten years, twenty years after the after the event. They are written down in RAF records, the United States Army Air Force records, uh, and others as well. So, yeah, they do appear. What they were, again, that's a different question. Right. Do you get a sense that there, this is a function of uh, military ac activity, right? So, you know, I yeah. think about the fact that every day we've got thousands of, of uh, commercial airplanes in our skies. We're not hearing a lot about this because we got a lot. And we got a lot of eyeballs in those planes. It's not just pilots. We got people looking out the window yeah. all the time. We're not seeing it. What we are seeing here, and what you're sharing with us, is an increase in activity correlated with presence in the skies of of aggressive intent. Yeah. And so I wonder, you know, is there a through line there? And we certainly hear about it with you know the Nimitz strike group and whatnot. But but I'd be curious to know, and I don't know to what extent you've looked at it. Any other major conflicts that involved air power so uh the korean war vietnam war other other you know iraq all these sort of different instances where there maybe have been a high presence of military activity in the sky if there was a similar uh, uptick in sighting reporting it's certainly true that the numbers of aircraft in the skies at any one time during world war ii was huge and it was unprecedented and you didn't just have one or two people in an open top biplane like you did in the war in World War One. You had, you know, sort of seven, eight, nine people in, in some cases, ten people in American aircraft on board on the same aircraft, you know, watching the skies all the time. So it was natural that the number of sightings would increase because you had tens of thousands of people in the sky at any one time. Now, in the First World War, apparently there are sightings. I know of a book that covers that. I've never actually read it. And I must admit, I've not looked into the cases, but I'm aware they exist. Mm. Um, and it's not just one or two either. Apparently, there are quite a few. There are s uh, similar cases from, from the Korean conflict as well. 
uh, of, of things being seen there. So yeah, and, and of course there, there's also um, sightings from Vietnam. So you can look to the various conflicts throughout history in terms of aerial participation and you come across reports. I don't know about ones from the, the two Iraq wars, but I'm sure there will be. Um, you might, you gentlemen might be able to inform me if there is, but I'm not aware of any. But that doesn't mean to say there aren't any. Um, so, and there will, and there of course in peacetime during the Cold War, there were reports as well of um, you know of MiGs going to uh, intercept you know various things that, they, that the Russians saw, uh, and in some cases apparently losing aircraft and pilots. Uh, there's also a case of a of a Cuban MiG twenty one apparently being shot down by a UFO at one stage. Again, I'm not entirely privy to the details, but I've heard of the case. Mm. So th there are, you know, other stories. But in terms of conflicts, Nathan, yes, definitely. There, mm. there, there may well be a correlation between the number of people up there and the intensity of the kind of conflict and whatever's watching. Mm. But, I mean, I don't like to go theorize about what these things are, but people have asked me before, and I come up with this just as, the, as an example. I don't necessarily subscribe to it, but it's something I think, look, you know, if I had the capability, I'd love to do this. Imagine the, 20, the year 2500. We invent time travel. Mm -hmm. Where would you like to go? If it was something where you didn't affect the past, like the butterfly mm -hmm. effect, you could just go and watch as an interested observer. Mm -hmm. And it was some way of getting our presence into that time you know, where it didn't interact too much, but it did a little bit. But it was a way of seeing what happened in the past. Where would you want to go? For some people, it might be Roman Britain. It might be watching the Roman wall being built. Mm -hmm. Or it could be watching um, Nelson's victory at Trafalgar. Or it mm -hmm. could be, I don't know, um, you know, going to see um, Armstrong lying on the moon or something. Yeah. For me, it'd be World War Two, And it would actually be the Eastern Front, because that's the, the, the actual the, the fighting that I was, I'm most interested in, and that's what I read up a lot on. But that's where I'd go. Whereas other people might have different places. Now, could it be something as simple as that? It could be people from the future watching us in the past. Who knows? But that's, I want to be at Woodstock, yeah. Graham. Right when, it, when Crosby it, stills it, and Nash's plan. Why does that surprise <laughs> me? <laughs> well, interestingly, too, we're talking about periods in history that are that have very little videographic evidence of. And so this is a fascinating theory. Uh, we have less photographic evidence of these events, less video evidence of the, these events, whereas the modern conflicts, there is more uh, data available, maybe not necessarily like we're not all looking at gun camera footage of what happened in, you know, in the Iraq conflicts and whatnot in Afghanistan. But nevertheless, these are peers that are kind of shrouded in a little bit of, uh, of, of uh, the, the, the gray uh, sort of fading of time, right? But being able to get back into it and just see it. And, and, to, and, and observe. That's a fascinating theory. Yeah. The, I mean, if you've seen the photographs on the internet about the Foo Fighters and you see these kind of little amorphous blobs mm. behind what are usually Japanese aircraft, they're often labeled as British or American or German, but don't believe it. They're, they're all Japanese, uh, or most of them Japanese, rather. Now, those could just be photographic defects because there's no context to any of these pictures. Mm. We don't know where they were taken, who took them, which squadron, which unit, you know, where, which raid, which date, all this kind of thing. And as far as I'm concerned, they mean nothing. Because that yeah. they could, for me, just be a mark on the film or an or error in the uh, development process because right. the technology back then wasn't as great. Um, and there is no real evidence of the Foo Fighters beyond testimony and mm. beyond information and official records. Whereas you get later on, you get, as you say, gun camera footage, you get FLIR footage, you, know, you get all the modern technology. But those sensors weren't available during World War II. Mm. Airborne radar was effectively um, a guy in the back of an aircraft 
uh, like hunched over a box, which the display didn't like you know go round round circle like you see in the films. It was like it looked like an oscilloscope in terms of the the, the display, and mm-hmm. they had to work out from that. It was like kind of you know trying to work out a, a puzzle from what whether the bearing and the height and the and the and the, and the, you know, the speed of the aircraft from this kind of like little bouncing trace on on, on the oscilloscope, mm-hmm. and it was only it was only effective to about five miles or so. So you had to have a ground station that had to vector you to within more or less striking distance of your target. And then you could then the airborne set would then take over because it you know it was that primitive. Mm. Um, now most of these Foo Fighters, within apart from a couple of cases, were never picked up on radar. So there's another thing as well. So mm. it wasn't as if they had any other kind of corroboration from the ground. There's one famous story about one of the night fighter pilots over over Belgium, uh, of, uh, yeah, and uh, sorry over France um, in uh, November or December 1944, and he's traced by one of these red lights. Um, and he, he radios the, the ground station to say, you know, have you got it? You know, you know, can you see it? Because we can't. And they turned around and said, you know, but there's nothing up there with you. You're not. You're on your own. You know, wow. and yet you've been chased around by this red light. So mm. that even then decides: what well, is there actually anything? Anything? Subs- you know, was there any substance to these lights, or were they just light? Uh, because nobody could really tell. They couldn't see anything, any form behind them. But then, of course, there's another thing which I haven't mentioned at all during this conversation. But in sort of October, I mean, September, October 1944, they started seeing what they said were jet fighters at night. Mm. The, this mm. is the, the, the Royal Air Force started reporting them. And in some cases, they opened fire them and shot them down. And the gunners claimed them as being destroyed. So mm. watching them go down in flames. Some of them would um, describe as being bat-winged. Some of them were just jets. But then again, the, the intelligence reports ratified that to be fast-moving lights. And that's all they say. But they were called jets because the RAF crews, well, intelligence were also thinking the Germans are going to start feeling these night fighter jets mm-hmm. because they were doing it in the daytime. But actually, the Germans didn't feel the proper night fighter jet until March 1945. So the, you, know, you have to think, well, OK, what were they seeing? Because they were definitely seeing before the Germans put jets up in the air at night. In any case, even for trials, and did and did they shoot them down? Is that legit? well? It's, if you look at the records and you look at the RAF squadron records, they claim them as kills. They have they have fairly detailed reports in quite a few cases where they say they open fire them, they either catch fire and they fall towards the ground, or they dive away. Now, nobody knows what these things were because again, mm. they don't fit profiles of anything in terms of the German offensive capabilities, whether. Um, actually put into into combat, into operational service, on the drawing board or you know, or in test. Hmm. Nothing, nothing like that at all. Is there any uh, credence to the idea that that could have been uh, put out as purposeful sort of disinformation by uh, the Allied powers? It, well, that infam- those records, Nathan, didn't go anywhere. They were internal hmm. records, so it's not as if they were passed on to anybody. It wasn't like uh, kind of a, a propaganda news sheet or a newspaper or a radio bulletin mm-hmm. that would be picked up by the German forces. Uh, and it wasn't something that went to like a third, like a kind of like a friendly country to be passed on to the Germans that way. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's no kind of benefit to write this kind of thing down in a obscure squadron log. Mm-hmm. I can, I can, yeah. I can speak. I can actually speak to this. Uh, on multi-crew airplanes, uh, I have heard, let us say, one or two tall tales that have been told that the majority of the community does not believe what occurred in the air. And I won't I won't go any further than that, but just 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 uh, take it that sometimes people will maybe invent certain events so that maybe there's a medal that follows or something like that. So that's very true. Um, and so I think you could, you, that in, could have what, been what that was. If it was one or two you know, occurrences, you could probably accept that was the case. 
but actually there's quite a few of them. Oh, and, it's, okay. and it's not just in September, October 1944. This actually goes right through to about February and March as well. Well, so, I, I think you missed my inference. My inference is not that it didn't happen, but that yeah. they splashed it. Right, that okay. they destroyed it. That part. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Is I that see. The, right. if, you, if you say, I saw something, is okay, yeah. If you say, we killed it, and we, yeah. it, we uh, made it fall out of the sky and burn in flames, that I might... I, I might attribute that to tall tales based on what you've the mm. information you gave us that preceded that. Yeah. But but actually, I want to move on to the MOD a little bit because we don't have a lot of time left. And I want to hit up what you think about uh, what's going on in the because uh, you are part of your organization. If you would please tell people the UAP yeah. media, UAP media UK. So, yes, we're kind of well, not Vinnie quite, Adams, uh, yeah, Graham, the signal, <laughs> Andy. <laughs> Yeah, so we're all a bunch of like-minded individuals who are trying yeah. to put um, some pressure on not just the government, but also uh, in, um, other kind of officials and also uh, the media to try and just have a bit of a more enlightened, a bit elevated conversation about UAP in general, rather than just the kind of mindset at the moment that seems to permeate the MOD, the Ministry of Defence in the UK, which is nothing of defence significance has happened within the last 50 years. And that is... The, that is the actual mantra that they keep trotting out every time there's either an official debate, such as in mm -hmm. the House of Lords, which is our non-elected chamber, because we have two houses, mm -hmm. uh, the House of Commons and the House of Lords in mm -hmm. Parliament. And they had a debate back, um, back in the early summer where that was the answer to pretty much every question that was asked on the subject, which followed on the, on the heels of the preliminary summary that you had in the States regarding the UAP issue. Um, and to which they just shut the de debate down. So as far as the, the MOD are concerned in Britain, there's no, there's no story, there's nothing to be answered. It just doesn't happen here. But then you have to wonder what the threshold is for them to take it seriously publicly. Mm. What would constitute um, a matter of defence significance? Because for my money, if something anomalous is flying you know, off the coast of, uh, within the 12-mile limit in, in the UK, and they're not, not going to scam scramble fighters after it, even though it might be sitting over a sensitive nuclear or defence installation, then that must be a defence matter, surely. And those kind of things have happened so within the last 50 years. And you have to just have a look at the Rendlesham incident and some other famous ones, the Calvin incident from 1990. Um, for them to say there's no defense significance, that means either that they're telling porkies or they know what these things are and they've considered them not to be a threat or they're just sticking their head in the sand. So you have to wonder which one's true. It's probably the middle one in terms of the Calvin incident, because that was probably one of yours. Do you do you think that uh, there should be a big phone home like for the something analogous to the big phone home UK where, you know, we get together a bunch of people and then contact, you know, members of uh, the House of Commons or and or the, the House of Lords. If you know, at the moment there is only a very very small handful of elected, well, they're not the non-elected representatives, the Lords and ladies in the House of Lords who asked questions of a kind of sympathetic nature to people like me about what the what the issue is. Now that's not the same across the MPs in the House of Commons. We don't actually know of any at the moment who have come out publicly to say that they're interested in the subject and they want to know more. <laughs> I think I found a, a live photo of the. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan. That mm -hmm. sums it up entirely. Yeah. So Graham, really, no under the radar kind of. Uh... Well, here, here's the here's the rub. We don't know if there is at the moment uh, because they're not approaching us as yet. But again, 
you know, that could change. And it could change overnight. It, w- it wouldn't take much for a few people to come out quite covertly and say, look, I'm interested. Can you tell me more? What, you know, what can you tell me? Who can you put me in touch with? So that could happen. But at the moment, we're not seeing that. But, you know, that, that said, that could change. So having a big phone home at the moment probably wouldn't get us very far because actually our tabloid press would rip it to shreds mm. as well. We have a we have a kind of thing in this country where they build people up and then they knock people down. Mm-hmm. And there's still enough of a stigma within the popular press in this country and also the BBC, etc., that they'll be quite happy it'll be open season. Now, if that changes, that groundswell of opinion changes, so we get a few MPs which are prepared to break cover and say publicly that they want some kind of investigation or want to know more, then that's better. And we would then have a position where we could do that kind of thing and have that kind of gra- you know, grassroots you know, um, kind of movement from ordinary people approaching elected officials. But at the moment, they would just clam up. And they would also, in terms of public responses, you would get the same thing. Because what they do is they don't come back with their own responses if you contact them. They mm-hmm. say they're going to pass that up to you know, the people who are in charge of that particular issue. So the Ministry of Defence or, or the, the the Secretary of State for Defence, etc. Because I've contacted my own MP about this. They don't, you know, they don't send you like information saying, "Oh yes, this is what I think about them." Too much. They might send you a couple of words, but actually, there's nothing concrete. They pass it up the chain, and then, of course, from them, when you get the response back from up the chain, it's the you know, there's nothing in fifty years, you know, defence significance. So you don't get anywhere. Mm. What about a so. reporting process? You know, because I guess in the in the US, at least. Uh, it sounds like our pilots will have a reporting process for UAPs. Have you seen anything in the, or heard about anything in the in Chris, the who knows? We don't know. Yeah, we we certainly don't know. No. You, 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 across in America, it seems that you're much more open with this, not only in terms of the uh, of your government, but also in terms of your military, uh, you know, the information that percolates out into the public realm. Yes. We don't have that. We, we are still kind of stuck in the past in terms of no, the public don't need to know that, and but they don't tell us. And it's, oh, yeah, you know, 50 years, it's fine. Don't ask any more questions. And that's it. That, that's what we get. Hmm. So, you know, we're way behind you in terms of any kind of openness and any kind of, seems that any kind of desire to be like that as well. It, it just, you just don't see it's there at the moment. Is it possible that it's a sort of five eyes, you know, that it's, it's follow the leader situation? It, it's the US is kind of leading the narrative here. There's no need to sort of get out. And, and, sure. and kind of take the lead, just follow the lead of what the U.S. Oh, is yes, I think that, that's 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 really true because in most things we follow you, in, you know, in, over a lot of things as well, and we're like the junior partner in that kind of relationship. So I, I, I guess that yes, you know, we will follow you in terms of things like that, and we just keep quite quiet about it. But also, there could be a, a kind of case for. We might just be going on our own. We might uh, the people who have it here might just think, well, there's nothing to it, or they might have mm-hmm. told themselves that, or they might be being told that's the case by other people who they rely on, and they're actually the secret keepers. Mm. So we don't. Again, we don't know. We get you get hints of things, but that's all you get. Um, and of course, the you know they're not perfect in terms of keeping the secrets. You know, there's been things that have come out occasionally, but it's not enough to be able to go, haha, you know, there you go. You know, whereas you've had that in the States, you know, uh, we send freedom of information requests as well, but we don't get much in return because um, they'll say, oh, it's to do with a defense matter or it's, uh, you know, something like that. And then they can stonewall it quite a lot. Um, So you you do end up getting nowhere here, whereas I think it's a bit easier across where you are. Hey, Graham. um, So I contacted a member, you know, the 47th Squadron, right? 
40, 40, you mean fighting the Hercules squadron? Yeah, uh, yeah. They're, not oh, at, they're not at Lynham. Where are they now? Oh, God, you, you tell me. I don't know anymore. They're, they're at another. They moved. The, they were at Lynham for years. but Probably at Bryce. Yeah, maybe Bryce Norton, right. Um, they were our sis, brother, sister squadron. So we had an exchange mm. where we'd send a pilot there and they would send a pilot to the States and we would fly. He'd fly Talent 2s and we'd fly their Super H2 that they had. And they had amazing aviators in that squadron, the pick of the litter of their special ops aviation. So I contacted one of them. Uh, well, you knew, you guys know I had Troy on the show with Chris, and Troy's willing to come on again. Mm -hmm. And I contacted this former member of the uh, uh, 47 Squadron who flies for BA, and uh, he he's like, uh, he didn't even respond. Yeah. And he responded that he took my, my request, like on mm -hmm. LinkedIn, you know, <laughs> and we became friends, but he didn't want to yeah. answer when I asked him about this topic and wanted to talk about it. That's, you you get that a lot. You get so far into conversations and then you get, you run into this brick wall where they just you know, say you don't want to talk about it or they just shut it down. They say, oh, there's nothing to it. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of stigma in terms of reporting from British Airways years ago where it was considered detrimental to, to a pilot's career if they mentioned anything about this. So they didn't. Hmm. And there was only a very, very few people actually came forward uh, for whatever reason and reported things and that's possibly the same in the military as well uh in terms of the rf or the fleet air arm or, or the or, or the uh, army air corps that when they see things they may be just in, encouraged not to report it because of maybe stigma or maybe because ridicule from their squadron mates or maybe just there might be some kind of um you know official kind of instruction that they may have to actually have a reporting uh kind of procedure where the details are passed on but that's the end of the story and that might be it, you know, right, you can't ask questions about this anymore. Because back in the day, back in the war, when the pilots reported things, they never got to know what this, you know, what the answer right. was. Mm. And that yeah. must be the case now as well. I guess, yeah. you know, your contemporaries, if you if they ever reported incidents with things they didn't understand, chances are they would never ever hear anything more about it once they'd report it. You know, that hey. it would never come back to them, would it? No, I mean, Chris and I would not have been uh, would not have been talking about this because that's like saying, hey, I don't want to fly anymore. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's you know, I mean, it's it's career suicide and it's only because of the courage of others uh, that came before us, like Dave and Fravor and Luis Elizondo and so on and so forth. And Chris Mellon, that yeah. we feel like, hey, we can we could talk about it. But we're going to get a last question from everybody and then we're going to we're going to uh, let Graham go about his evening. So, Nathan, you go ahead. Yeah, I'm curious if you came across any uh, or looked into any reporting of USOs during World War Two. There aren't um, in terms of USOs, there aren't any in the European theater operations, but there are stories of things in the Pacific where mm -hmm. they might have been seen coming out of the water. But again, that's something I haven't got into yet, but that's the next book I'm writing. So hey. hopefully I'll, I'll come up with uh, things like that. There we go. <laughs> Great. Chris. Uh, yeah. I had a question. Um, I just read the uh, skin markers of the Pentagon mm. book. Graham, <laughs> very interesting. Uh, I guess my, um, my my first question, uh, I guess, is: Is there a Skinwalkers kind of area of the UK? You know, I hear so much about the UK. There's like so many sightings. You know, you have Stonehenge, you have all this this ancient uh, ancient sites. Is there like a Skinwalkers area, Skinwalker Ranch? Not as such in terms of some of the things that happened there, but there's certainly places where there've been a lot of activity. And one in particular is what they call the Welsh Triangle, mm -hmm. and it was from the 1970s where there was a spate of reports of very strange things. Some coming out of the water. 
one going into solid rock as well. And this was off a particular part of Western Wales. Um, so and it got the nickname the, the, the Welsh Triangle. Uh, mm. There are books on the subject as well, but there was, there was also a school um, sighting where kids in the school had seen uh, something you know, nearby. So yeah, there's, there's a few stories like that. But in terms of having a like a farm or a ranch where some weird things happen and it's remote enough that it's all self-contained with you know hitchhikers and portals and all this all this yeah. other stuff i'm not aware of anything like that but you know again who knows it could well be it just we haven't got we haven't come across it yet yeah and finally yeah, and finally in there there's an interesting um uh engagement i guess with f-15s over the uk i don't know if you if you read the yes book, so, yeah, but, uh, from lake Neath, yes yeah i was i was actually flying in aviana it was interesting I, you know i re- listened because i was flying f-16s at that time uh in uh in italy uh so kind of interesting once in a while we, we would meet up with the, the f-15 guys at exercises um but yeah if you remember did you had you heard about that um that engagement it's basically two f-15s they they pick something up on radar that they they go and check it out and they can't identify it. They basically say it looks like a meteorite or something. Yeah, it's like it looks like a rock, rock, didn't they? Yeah, that's what they, that's what they described <laughs> it as. Like a floating rock. Uh, it, where, yeah, it was picked up by a by an aircraft enthusiast listening onto his scanner. Uh, oh right, okay, the air, the, the, the air chatter frequencies, and they were actually talking on a on a like a, on an air to air frequency um, for the squadron. Um, they'd also, I think, they'd been directed to the target by by London military, uh, the, the the one of their uh, military control frequencies, to go and investigate it. And it was somewhere just not. It, I, this thing is, I don't exactly know it, where it was. I think it was somewhere just north of Lake and Heath. It wasn't too far away from the base. Um, but yeah, it was. They describe it as a rock. And I think one the pilots did several passes um, to, to try and work out what it was, but it was incomplete. Yeah. I was talking to my F-16 buddy last night, you know, at the reunion, and we were talking about this, and it just uh, – he agrees with me that you're, we're going to be able to figure out what it is. You know, I mean, there, it's mm. very – it would be very rare to, to circle back on something, mm. you know, because it can't just run away, you know, so we should be able to catch up to it. But it's it, he agreed with me that it seems like we would the pilot would circle back around Get, and just get closer to this thing in an orbit and, and figure out what it is. You know, we're just curious by nature. Um, he certainly had a couple of goes at trying to work out what it was, but I, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the constraints of the mission were. So I don't know what his fuel load was, his fuel state, and whether he yeah. had a, you know, but had, today, I but, guess my final point, had you heard was, of that? Had you heard of that before? <laughs> yes, I've definitely heard of it. Okay, yeah. I've, I've heard of it. I've heard of the story. Um, it, it's It's been out for a little while now. Yeah, and, I, and, and it was the, interesting because they hear they, the, the, the ground guys, they were listening to the pilot radio chatter you know and i, I remember that was we we're supposed to go you know to the to our uh jam resistor or, or yeah you know but, uh, but back in the day back in the day because i used to do that kind of thing as well when i was much younger and you could get you could buy sc- commercially available scanners that would uh, pick up things in the military band quite easily so you could listen to air-to-air chat frequencies yeah. Uh, if you were close enough and you had a good enough aerial and the wind and the aircraft were nearby, yeah, it was no problem. Yeah. Uh, I would I would pick up uh, DJs, you know, earlier colleagues from the from the nineteen nineties and the nineteen eighties flying over here uh, in the Thumbland, you know, like, late at night as well. So you occasionally hear them if you if you knew which frequency they were using, etc. It was mm. it was relatively easy. But uh, that was the hard part was trying to work out which you know, what they were using at different times. So this guy, whoever he was, had, had managed to stumble upon this this um, this exchange. He was obviously well versed in being able to track aircraft on missions and, and listen to them 
hop from frequency to frequency and the ones that couldn't be jammed. I think he was having difficulty from where he was located, being able to hear the ground element of the conversations. Yeah, you see, was, he's not going to hear that. Yeah, he wouldn't hear that. That was the only thing I can I can relate to that. That was the only thing he was he was he wasn't getting. But there's a guy in the States called Steve Douglas, who is a, the same kind of guy. He listens to a lot of stuff. He was the person, I think, who intercepted the information about the American Airlines aircraft that oh, had wow. that missile go past wow. uh, you know, a little right. while back. Mm -hmm. So there are people like that around the world who occasionally pick up things like this. You know, and, and that kind of information is like a little gold mine, really. Yeah, I, the, the aviation uh, f fanaticism in the UK, which is a not only in the UK, but I guess in parts of Europe as well. It's a, be it's a beautiful thing, and it's much, much uh, uh, more widespread than it is yeah. in the United States. If you think people love aviation here, it's nothing like when people show up to Fairford and asking you to sign flight orders that they got, and just they they're sitting outside of Milden Hall with cameras uh, just to watch you take off. Like mm -hmm. you know, a lot of Americans are going to just as many people do that. But anyway, yeah. Graham, the last question I have for you. Um, and it's basically your perspective. So if you were to have a message for UFO Twitter and you were to start off with something like what I'd really love to see from hashtag UFO Twitter or the UFO community at large is. Well, that's a question, isn't it? Thanks a lot, DJ. <laughs> We're not going to Everyone buying this. How about this? How about a bit of love, peace, and understanding? <laughs> there you go. Not going to make it easy. On... That's it. Peace and understanding. All right. Love, peace, and understanding. Just like your brother, John Lennon, man. Yeah, exactly. So, so it was an absolute honor to have you on. It won't be the last. Uh, we want to uh, keep you as, as, as part of our, you know, our show rotation, et cetera. And uh, and consult you on these things. Um, it takes an enormous amount of work and love and passion to be able to investigate something like that and come up with a book. And it shows the enthusiasm for aviation that you have that then grew into to ufology. Uh, and I I want to thank you uh, on, from the bottom of my heart on behalf of uh, Nathan, uh, the UFO community at large. So thank you for coming on. Please uh, promote everything and anything that you have for your brothers, UAP Media UK, your brothers, the Zignal, Vinny, Andy. Go ahead, so, man. In that case, um, I'd like people to have a look at UAPmedia.uk, the website, which is uh, where a lot of our articles appear, uh, written by members of our group. But also to subscribe to Andy's That UFO Podcast. Mm -hmm. Really good. He's now got a show on KGRA. Her, her. And also, if you look at people on through on Twitter, because you've got people like Dan the Signal, uh, Dan Zetterstrom, you've got Adam Goldsack, you've got Dave Partridge, Shadows of the Mind magazine. Um, you've also got Vinny Adams, the Disclosure Team. He's on Instagram. So all all of those people are worth a follow. In terms of my book, um, UFOs Before Roswell: European Food Fighters, nineteen forty to nineteen forty-five, it's available through Amazon. So wherever you live in the in, in the world, if you you know whichever Amazon affiliate you use. You can uh, you can find it there. If you do a search for my my name, you'll find it as well. Uh, so that's that's how you get a hold of that. Uh, my my Twitter handle is below there, border seven fifty. There's a link tree reference on the in, in my profile, and you can find everything that I've done through that as well. So that's the easiest way, really. And so, the book is called. The book is called UFOs Before Roswell. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen. Fantastic. Yeah, Vinny Adams, we gonna see you, baby. We'll see you soon, Vinny. I'm gonna bring the noise. 
<laughs> it really has been great to chat with you. You've made this history for me come alive. I mean, I, I really was riveted during this entire conversation. So thank you so much. And I also want to say thank you to our listeners and watchers on uh, of the show. Good to see a lot of chatter in the in the chat. And Chris, thank you so much for uh, taking some time out of your day to pop in and yeah. participate. Thanks for inviting me. Thank, uh, yeah. yeah, very happy to be here. Thanks, Chris. So I'm going to read your book for sure, 100%. It's yeah. next. Thank you. It's, it's yeah. great to be able to see you in person, Chris, and talk to you. So, so I enjoy our conversation the other week. Uh, DJ, Nathan, sorry about the sound issues. Um, my my great, earbuds man. have never failed before, but just happened, happened to do tonight. No worries, Love you, man. man. We are good, man. That And we appreciate your time. We're honored to have you on the show as we are every single person that decides that they want to uh, take some of their time and come on here and have a discussion with us. And it's an honor. Some people have nobody to talk to and we don't have that issue. So thank God yeah. um, for Graham Randell, for Chris Leto, for my brother, Nathan, this is DJ saying peace out, one love, and we'll see you down the road. Bye everyone.